HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. And if you didn't check it out, on Friday we had an amazing visit to Heritage Radio from Carlo Petrini, founder of Slow Food, and Alice Waters. So you can listen to their whole conversation. Very, very interesting, cool stuff talked about um, on the homepage at heritageradionetwork.org. Today, I'm really excited to chat with a journalist, a pioneering journalist um, who's written for The Atlantic, Harper's. He's reported stories for PBS uh, Frontline, now with Bill Moyers. And his new book is called Carbon Shock, A Tale of Risk and Calculus on the Front Lines of the Disrupted Global Economy. It's Mark Shapiro. How are you? Hi there. <laughs> Good to be here. <laughs> Thanks. And you're, you're, you're dialing us in from the Bay Area, correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm here in the Bay Area. Yeah, it's a beautiful sunny day awesome <laughs> thanks California. so much for, thanks so much for joining <laughs> although us although we haven't had much water lately but Uh-oh. otherwise the sun is great well more on that <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so your last book actually i thought it was amazing it was called uh chem- was it sorry exposed the toxic chemistry of everyday mm-hmm. products and what's at stake for american power um that was enlightening eye-opening scary and really important so thank you for that book and uh Hope everyone checks it out, too, because it's still very relevant. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So this is your second book, and it's about carbon emissions. Um, So first of all, I mean, the first thing we we tend to think about when it comes to carbon emission, you know, we worry about the environment. We worry about climate change, drought, natural disasters, tropical storms. Um, But this book points out that the carbon crisis is going to have a catastrophic effect also on the global economy. Um, very interesting. And yeah. is this sort of your way of saying to maybe otherwise uninterested parties, like, wake up, <laughs> you might be interested in this? Well, yes, actually, <laughs> that's a very good way to put it. Actually, you put it better than I could have put it. Um, 
I think that that is the reason that I wrote the book, was I think there's been a lot of discussion about the, um, you know, the impacts of climate change on the earth and how that is kind of changing conditions yeah. for us here. And I wanted to look at essentially the, what does that mean for the economics of how we live, or the way we make decisions and economic, uh, the economic reality here. And I, I basically, uh, you know, talk about this idea that the same kind of disruption that we now understand is happening in the world, in the natural conditions, is actually happening in the economy. A lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of money is at stake. Huge amounts of money is at stake. And, and even the future way of doing business in various forms. Is, right. Yeah. Well, okay. So, I mean, this is also a food program. So uh, this book actually covers two whole chapters devoted to food and the food uh, system uh, globally. So, um you know, financially, um, okay, so well, first of all, the food system is definitely being affected by carbon emissions. But also, um, you write about how farming has always been a risky business with bad mm-hmm. years and good years. Um, and, you know, but bad years nowadays are becoming more and more the norm. And that's what is messing up a lot of the productions and ag- algorithms that we have today um, regarding farming production. Um and and you write a little bit, well, actually a lot <laughs> about. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you write a lot about um, farming insurance or crop insurance, mm-hmm. yeah. and a couple things are happening. It sounds like um, one insurance payout payouts due to these f- more normal uh, catastrophic events in farming are skyrocketing, and at the same time, crop insurance rates that the farmers have to pay are are staggering as well. And what does that mean for for businesses, for farms, and and for consumers, for taxpayers? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it means a lot for uh, taxpayers, and it means a lot for consumers, meaning people who consume food, which is basically all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, one of the things that, that, that when we talk about the economics of climate change uh, or the, econo- the economic uh, angle that I take, it's actually to try to understand the hidden costs of fossil mm-hmm. fuels that are now largely shielded from our view by the, by the way the system is organized. And, and, and so I want to try to understand the kind of economic burden that, that fossil fuels are creating for us as a way to kind of make more uh, honest and informed decisions mm-hmm. about how we move forward. So when it comes to food, it's really incredible, and my eyes were open in the process of doing reporting on this book, was um, – how the crop insurance system, the system that is uh, intended to uh, support farmers and enable them to to not essentially go out of business when there's really bad weather, mm-hmm. uh, is bearing the brunt of the U.S. federal government's uh, uh, financial payouts from climate change. They're finding that actually the um, a, the Government Accountability Office, which monitors uh, U.S. government programs, uh, basically said last year that actually the that the the crop insurance program was facing a fiscal crisis uh, due to the uh, astronomic increase in payouts related to climate change. Mm-hmm. And uh, so suddenly, basically, here's something you probably never normally think about. It's like crop insurance is out there yeah. for farmers right. uh, to deal with the circumstances. And suddenly we, we have a way to understand what the costs of climate change are to our food system and to us, to we taxpayers who are basically mm-hmm. paying those costs. Yeah, like I didn't know that in 2011, um, the Midwest drought um, 
it resulted in, uh, you've right, at least $11 billion of the total was paid by taxpayers to cover the insurance liabilities to farmers. I mean, how would we have known that otherwise, um, that this was going on? It was being paid out of our pockets, too. Um, it exactly. seems to be shielded, like, yeah, like you're saying, through all these mechanisms of, of hitting costs. Yes, and if you look at it, you know, it's, 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 it's like crop insurance is a classic example where this, where this you know, uh, like I said, the Midwestern drought, which many, which I would say the, the overall preponderance of scientists around the world uh, the, say that the intensity and the breadth and the depth of that drought is directly linked to climate change. Mm-hmm. And it's just like other uh, scientists who I talk to who are both, both scientists and also, like agricultural field agents who work for the USDA here in uh, California, they have a whole system run through the University of California to offer advice to farmers, are all talking about the fact that, um, you know, we've always had good years and bad years yeah. uh, in farming. God knows it's a very risky uh, business, but the quantity of those bad years is increasing as a result of these tumultuous changes in the atmosphere. So as those bad years, quote, bad years get uh, more and more intense, uh, it's, it's, we are paying for that in numerous ways. Number one, the crop insurance system, billions and billions of dollars in increased payments to farmers and, just over and the just past decade. just to back up a little bit, you write that the crop insurance system was founded during, like, the Dust Bowl, the FDR, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, then, it's amazing. It's great history. The, the the crop insurance system goes back to the 30s. You know, I think the PBS is showing this program on the Roosevelts now. Uh, <laughs> I did watch that, and, and I loved it, by the uh, way. It and so it was uh, FDR, of course, who did found the crop insurance system after the Dust Bowl, which was devastating, you know, mm-hmm. to um, Oklahoma, West Texas, a whole part of the country just devastated in terms of the impact of those massive dust storms. And... Um, and compelled farmers to leave their land because they can no longer support themselves on the land. Well, the Roosevelt administration and, and Henry Wallace, as vice president, came up with this idea to keep uh, farmers off the land so they wouldn't be expelled every time there was a bad year, they weren't forced to leave, that they would have, have an insurance system at least to cover some of their costs. Mm-hmm. And that came out of the Dust Bowl period. Of course, that was like 60, 70, uh, uh, or 70-some years ago. And now we have a significant, you know, federally subsidized crop insurance system, essentially designed to help farmers remain on the land even in the face of bad years. But those bad years are getting more and more and more and more frequent. There's more dust storms, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Essentially, yes. Uh, and, and, mm-hmm. and now it sounds like there's all kinds of expensive policies um, that farmers are, are buying um, these days. Uh, you, you visited and, and spoke with um, an independent insurance or a private insurance company called the Climate Corporation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which applied a sort of more sophisticated algorithm than the USDA. DA typically does to predict these weather patterns for farmers to, to buy their insurance. Um, interestingly, and I know this isn't like the whole <laughs> point of your book, but um, you write that Monsanto purchased this company um, and as well as another uh, sort of data gather, like what was it? They purchased another corporation um, at this at around the same time as the climate corporation Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Yes. It- uh, yeah. Let me. Uh, basically, okay. <laughs> I mean, you have this, all these changes as the um, as the conditions have shifted. What's really incredible to um, see is how 
the uh, on the one hand the insurance industry is responded and the other hand how the seed industry is 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 responding to these situations these changes so number one when it comes to um the climate corporation is now uh, i think it's the biggest private crop insurance uh, 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 company in the country. In other words, they, they kind of offer more crop insurance, mm-hmm. uh, additional coverage uh, than the USDA does. And uh, the guy who founded it is actually pretty amazing. He was he worked at Google for many years, and he was like a data yeah. analyst, analog. I mean, uh, um, algorithm creator for for Google. Very Not sophisticated, high tech guy. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, and he basically. Um, uh, created, uh, came out of Google and created this crop insurance company called the Climate Corporation, which can do extremely precise renderings of the weather conditions, uh, uh, you know, parcel by parcel all across the country. And this is not a promotional thing for the Climate Corporation, to make clear, but what was interesting about what they're able to do is because they can get more and more precise, Mm-hmm. They they uh, they themselves actually have extremely sophisticated weather predictive yeah. devices, and he is saying the the head of the company who I interviewed that essentially they are seeing these huge shifts in the app in the in the conditions for farmers on both you know from county to county there are kind of alterations in the way that the shifts are happening and that is creating higher and higher and higher liabilities for both his insurance company but also damages to farmers so right. the level of understanding that has become much more sophisticated. amazing it's kind of like they hold almost a crystal ball into the future of fruit yes. production well yeah you can put it that um, way <laughs> but what does that mean now that Monsanto uh, you seem to imply that um, or suggest that Monsanto now has the ability since they bought this corporation they have this data they have they have the crystal ball, um, you know, that they, they could profit. They can profit off of the climate crisis um, through creating seeds that are befitting for the future's problems. Is that correct? Uh, that is, uh, broadly speaking, yes, that is, <laughs> that is correct. I mean, essentially, Monsanto, the huge, you know, agribusiness uh, company uh, that um, we're probably familiar with, um, known for devising new seed varieties, GMOs primarily, yeah. uh, purchased the Climate Corporation about a year ago for almost a billion dollars just to show uh, what the value of this information has, uh, a lot of money, and uh, integrated this kind of sophisticated data collecting into Monsanto, which, number one, enables it to get into the crop and into the insurance uh, business mm-hmm. using this very sophisticated technology, but two, feed into the development of new seeds. Right. And it's really quite something, given Montanto's history in developing GMO seeds. Uh, they're now using this very sophisticated kind of weather technology to develop a whole, whole new generations oh, of gosh. seeds. You, and mm-hmm. um, that, is, that is quite a development, because probably many of those are going to be GMO seeds, which comes with their whole bundle of uh, questions. What other ways do you see people uh, sort of making a profit out of the food industry's uh, ups and downs and, un- you know, unstable future? 
Uh, well, the commodity traders are certainly making a lot okay. of money if, you, if you're betting on the food commodity market. Uh, more specifically, I just also want to stress, I think, number one, you've seen intense uh, activity by Monsanto in that area, but mm-hmm. I also there's also a lot of breeders across the country who are not GMO breeders, very okay. clearly are just, are, you know, old-style hybridization uh, breeders and uh, organic breeders who are... Uh, yeah. Crop breeding, breeding, you know, smaller farms who are devising new kind, you know, varieties that actually will uh, um, are, are 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 far more resilient mm-hmm. to the changes brought by climate change. And I went down to a big nursery down in the Central Valley of California and saw this incredible effort. Uh, um, a place called the Duarte Nursery, which does traditional uh, seed breeding, not GMOs, and they're doing all sorts of breeding of new varieties to deal with the lesser uh, amounts of water uh, coming in, the Mm -hmm. higher uh, levels of salt in the soil, and these are companies, if you want to say that they're going to make money out of it, they're basically, you know, trying to adapt to this very rapidly shifting uh, 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 landscape on the ground, and... um, and so the other people who are making, if you want to say making money, putting it through that refracting lens, are the uh, private water bank owners, for example, in California, and I believe you must have, I must believe there are those in the Midwest and other parts of the country, uh, that, um, that basically have bought up private uh, aquifers <laughs> and are basically, when the, when the water allocation, which is a federal and state subsidized water system here in California, mm-hmm. uh, reduced the water allocation to farmers, guess what? These, these private water right holders started offering water at uh, some four to five times the price of the publicly subsidized water. Mm-hmm. And so, number one, they're making a lot of money. And number two, we, the consumers, are paying the increased price for that water, right, mm-hmm. in the form of the food. So when you want to start to understand the hidden costs of climate change, track it all the way down these multiple steps, and you discover that, one, uh, we are paying more for food because farmers have to pay more for water, and in other instances, farmers have to fallow their land because they can't get enough water, which means they produce less food. So there's a whole sequence of dominoes that happen. And this is only in the food area alone, which, which as you mentioned, is two chapters out of nine in the book. Mm-hmm. But basically, you can watch these kind of steps unfold. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. This is only touched on like a fraction of everything I wanted to talk about. But we are going to cut to a quick little commercial intro, and we'll be right back. Ten more. You are listening to Young Blood by The Hollows. The 
International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. We're back chatting more with Mark Shapiro, the author of Carbon Shock, A Tale of Risk and Calculus on the Front Lines of the Disrupted Global Economy. Um, so we were just talking about uh, a little bit about some some of the ways that uh, different interests are adapting to the future uh, food production, um, given all the given all the changes um, in the climate that we've been seeing in the past few years. Um, so, also, you, you mentioned that the USDA is sort of changing their tune a little bit, too, just in, like, the last year or so. Um, you write that they are now – sorry, where where is it? Yeah, I, <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote it. Right. Okay, okay. You said, it was um, a real eye-opener for me. You said mm-hmm. the USDA's call for composting soils, right. rotating crops, and decreasing the use of ag- agricultural chemicals sounds very much to what has been on the recipe list for – of the sustainable farming community decade for <laughs> farming community for decades now, um, why is it changing its tune so much from you know monoculture, mass scale industrial farming, uh, and now it's talking about composting, crop rotation, integrated farming? Um, what's what's in it for them? What's what's that all about? Yeah, that is really interesting, and I, I got to say, it really surprised me as I mm-hmm. dove into this topic uh, more deeply. Was to realize that the um, that the USDA basically uh, was was in, in, in the same uh, year that these kind of rising concern about the, about the financial uh, status of the crop insurance system were being raised. This is just last year. Uh, the USDA was coming out with an entirely new set of guidelines. Well, I don't know if entirely new, but a new set of guidelines yeah. about how the proper, the best ways to farm. And uh, what's really incredible in reading them, because like you said, we're so used to the USDA as being, you know, promoting monocrops and um, and a heavy reliance on agricultural chemicals mm-hmm. and et cetera, big factory farms. They have now this new set of guidelines, which basically says, like, the most effective and resilient way to farm is uh, through uh, the rotation of crops, uh, diminishing the quantities of agricultural chemicals, increasing the quantity of organic matter in the soil, just both for healthier crop but also for water absorption uh, purposes. Mm And uh, suddenly you're reading the USDA's guidelines, which I quote, you know, in the book. And uh, they sound like real, us. And it sounds very much <laughs> like what the sustainable family farm movement has been saying for decades. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting is um, is that there. Uh, one of the reasons for this, I think, is that there have been a number of studies uh, uh, from you know the top universities studying agronomy and agricultural um, uh, issues across the world, basically, demonstrating that uh, those kind of di- more diverse uh, farms are far more resilient to these kind of dramatic changes in the weather than those big factory farms okay. of the past. 
And that has been a huge discovery, I think, over the last several years to realize how much more resilient, basically, how if we're going to move forward, you know, if we are, you know, we are moving forward into this kind of climate-impacted world, uh, that kind of understanding of agriculture is far more And these long-term studies have have shown it. So that's that's exciting. It's it's really pretty interesting. I also love Uh, how you draw a parallel between the national health care system and sort of (laughs) seeing seeing that taking care of of people's public health um, just in general will will add up to less cost than we're going to have to pay off in health, you know, in health care costs later on. So I love how you say that it's sort of like, a crop health insurance. It's seeing that the that there's healthy crops and healthy farmland and healthy soil throughout, rather than paying out these big catastrophic <laughs> payouts later on. It's yes, cool. exactly. That's what it suddenly hit me because, of course, my last book was about toxic chemicals, and um, and in that case, uh, we we didn't at that time have a national health care system. <laughs> so basically, the costs of the health effects of toxic chemicals, this was in my book Exposed, was borne by individuals, right? Mm. So the government did not have a financial motive to actually move on toxic chemicals, which I argued in that book is one of the reasons why we've had fairly pretty weak regulation on toxic chemicals. Mm. Now bringing us up to date several years uh, later on this, my new book, uh, this of Carbon Shock, is actually thinking of crop insurance like a health insurance program for plant, which essentially it is for crops. It's actually, you know, it's also ensures the livelihood of farmers who bring those crops to us, of course. So, um, and I, I realize that it's actually no accident that at the same time that the, um, that the crop insurance system is being found financially threatened by the uh, dramatically shifting growing conditions, essentially in the same year, uh, the USDA comes out with a whole change of its approach to uh, farming and mm-hmm. starts promoting this more uh, uh, what, what's been known as sustainable uh, agricultural ideas because, number one, aside from the scientific studies, which I think have been just building and building and building, uh, you have now this financial impetus, which is if we continue going on the level we're going in terms of how we organize uh, farms, we're going to have more and more and more severe payouts mm. because those farms are less resilient. I mean, they can you know, bounce back less quickly than these other more. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty been... interesting, that interplay between the, right. and, the and, money and the policy. <laughs> and the money and the, the costs are being shared by uh, the public through these crop insurance plans, uh, at least through the USDA. Um, but... Uh, do you see this as like a, the crop insurance plan being applied to other industries that um, can share the burden or at least make it more transparent um, what we're paying in terms of carbon emissions? Well, I mean, that's essentially, you know, you've, of course, struck at the fundamental question of <laughs> climate change and the climate negotiators have been trying to come up with a way to deal with this. Just in a capsule version, I mean, what what we're trying to do and uh, what climate negotiators with the world has been trying to do and um, we're trying to do in this country is to have a price for fossil fuels that mm-hmm. actually reflect their actual costs, because now we're operating under this illusion. And the illusion is essentially that fossil fuels are less expensive 
than renewable fuels. And they're hidden. That's a very fundamental illusion that lies at the core of this whole debate. And it's actually why I wanted to write this book, was to actually say, wait a minute, wait a minute, when we're making these kind of calculations about renewables versus fossil fuels, we're not actually taking into account the actual costs of fossil fuels. So, of course, they're always going to seem cheaper mm-hmm. because we don't actually take into account their costs. So the uh, uh, challenge is to actually begin to account for those monumental costs of fossil fuels that have not been counted in the past. And crop insurance is one significant one, but it's not the only one. There are many, many, many countless ones that I talk about in the book, of course. And to understand uh, what those uh, costs are and then how to inject them into the global economic system, that has essentially been the challenge of uh, of, 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 of climate change, economically speaking. And even, oh, you know, the um, Council of Economic Advisors from the White House uh, uh, issued a statement about a month and a half ago saying that the cost of climate change to the U.S., to the United States economy, would um, grow 40% every decade that the current trajectory of emissions continues. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot of money. So the question is, who pays for those costs, right? Right now, it's you and me. It's it's you and me. It's the taxpayers. <laughs> but we don't America necessarily that know costs. that, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think like a huge part of trying to figure out how to affix prices to carbon emissions is people understanding that they're actually paying for them. So I think that your work really helps out in that, making that uh, more visible. And and it's it's a great work that you've done here um, with this book. Um, thank you. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, last but not least, um, you mentioned about some efforts to make carbon emissions in food. Sorry, I'm talking about food this whole time. Um, a little right. bit. Um, we, we do all eat it, so <laughs> it's pretty relevant. Yeah. So uh, uh-huh. I was really excited when I read that the UK um, encouraged supermarkets to try to figure out the carbon imprint of uh, the carbon footprint of different items in their grocery store, and the largest uh, supermarket chain, Tesco, actually complied, and they came up with a little um, kind of mini-study of of how many carbon, uh, you know, the measurement of carbon for each little item. Um, and then you also read that there's a group in the U.S. called the Environmental Working Group mm-hmm. who has published a sort of more generalized uh, study of, you know, say, beef, pork, uh, leafy green vegetables have less carbon emissions, and um, you know, in spite of uh, or without having um, you know these more clear and concise studies, because there's so many variables in figuring out the carbon footprint of beef from one place to another. Um, I'm always trying to sort of grasp at what's more, what's what's uh, you know what's more clean, what's less carbon footprint, um, and I just sort of gravitate towards these generalized notions like okay, leafy green vegetables are less than beef. Uh, imported stuff is more uh, than local stuff. But what are do you see any problems with that or surprises within this generalized system? Uh, well, number one, um, first of all, it is interesting just to go back to the, 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 the obviously there's, there, there's, 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 there, there is an effort in, in Britain. You can go to Tesco, which is the big, uh, so you know, cool. supermarket chain. And, you know, it's a Inspiring. huge chain. Yeah. Again, this is not an endorsement. It's just actually to show that these kind of consciousness is rising in different places in the world. And you can see this where they do list the carbon footprint of food. And you can learn yeah. a huge amount about what each thing from the, you know, canned peas all the way to, you know, you know, a, a, a pound of lamb, 
uh, all the way across the board to green vegetables, etc. And I think um, I, I, I think I think your assumption is probably roughly uh, uh, correct. I think um, uh, I hate to say it, but meat is essentially at the top <laughs> of the um, of the carbon and cheese footprint, too, uh, dairy. Thing. And I'm a meat eater, so yeah. I'm you know I'm not a vegetarian. Although yeah. you know I do like my vegetables. Uh, so, but uh, there is no question that meat, because of the incredible amount of um, of land that actually animals take, the waste that comes out, methane, of course, is a greenhouse gas, um, has the highest footprint by far. And uh, green vegetables, broadly speaking, yes, they have a far lower carbon footprint, although the question is how far they're imported from. You know, if they're mm-hmm. local, green vegetables, no question, basically knock out everything in terms of low carbon footprint. But if they're imported, you know, tomatoes from Chile, that's, you know, a different question. Right. So the the Environmental Working Group, which is a you know, very uh, effective nonprofit organization in the United States, does have a guide uh, to some of these kind of broad categories, as does Tesco. You yourself or anybody else could go to Tesco's website. Again, not that I'm promoting Tesco, but just as a way, to, it was the most comprehensive guide to specific types of food that I've seen when it comes to carbon footprints. So very cool. I thought that, I thought that example is very hopeful. Um, cool. In creating, yeah, and creating more awareness, I guess, around the issue of carbon emissions in the world, and especially in everyday purchases like food. Um, so I know <laughs> there's so much more about your book um, regarding cap and trade, and you know those the price of carbon um, in all sorts of industries. But um, that's about all the time we have for today. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Well, listen. Hey, it's great talking to you. And, Thank you. And, and yeah, and like you know, I tried to try to tell stories about about how all these kind of definitely these are being experienced. But yeah, great real examples. To you. Thank you so much, and best of and- luck continuing with your work. Thanks. I'm on Twitter, too, if anybody wants to follow us, at Shapiro, S-C-H-A-P-I-R-O. We'll be tweeting. Thank you, Mark. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, everyone. Heritage, we'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. And I-